0: Oh, left fielders, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go.
1: Follow the demographics. Follow the jobs. People are still going to Texas. You're just not going to get the same deals we got before. So, what's the new Texas? Is there another place that might have similar numbers, but where there's still this job growth and population growth? And we believe that
0: is the Southeast. Very excited to have Travis Smith, founder and CEO of TribeVest, which is an online platform that facilitates small group investing. Travis formed his first tribe with his brothers to try to grow their wealth through alternative investments. Helping others invest together became a passion of Travis's, and TribeVest was born now he has hundreds of tribes investing millions of dollars into all types of assets and businesses. Travis, can you share some of the ways TribeVest uh, helps build wealth for passive investors? I go back to when my brothers and I were first thinking about forming our, our first investment tribe. Prior to that, we invested in our 401ks, and that's all we knew. But everybody we knew that was wealthy was invested in real estate or owned a business. And... By us coming together to form an investor tribe, pulling our capital, put us in a position to invest in real estate, to start a business. Tribe Best gives people the ability to come together and do more than they would or could on their own. Can you tell us how listeners can get in touch with you? Absolutely. They can come to TribeVest.com. I love the origins of how TribeVest started with you and your brothers. Thanks for that, Travis. You want to learn more about TribeVest? Visit them at www.tribevest.com/partners/lf and get your first $50 deposited in your Tribe's bank account.
2: You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community.
0: Hi, I'm Dave Zuck from The Real Asset Investor and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. I'm very excited today to have Kathy Fetke with us. She is the CEO of the Real Wealth Network, host of the Real Wealth Show and author of Retire Rich with Rentals. She helps people build wealth through cash flowing real estate, through single family rentals, syndications, and more. She's grown an amazing network and built a great community and shares a lot of our focus on networking and education we have here at Leftfield Investors. So Kathy, welcome to the Passive Investing from Leftfield Podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're really glad to have you here. And I'd like to start out just by hearing a little bit about your journey. A lot of our listeners are familiar with you already, but if you can kind of just talk to us about how you got into real estate and, and how you got to where you are now, where you have this great success with your, fa- your single family rentals, syndications, and all the other stuff you do. Oh,
1: I'd like to say that I had it all mapped out and planned, but it was <laughs> pretty much by accident and um, learning along the way but it really started in 2003 when actually 2002 when my husband was going on his book tour for extreme success and he just noticed randomly that he had a freckle on his forehead and he is a redhead with a lot of freckles so i don't know how he recognized that one but he went and got it checked it turned out it was melanoma melanoma at that time this is you know a lot, the medical fields come a long way but back then they didn't think they had a cure for it and if it's reds it was pretty lethal so, uh, or fatal, I should say. So he, he was told by his doctor, he had probably six months to live. Um, so that was the shocking rocking of my world. And I had two young kids at home. We just bought a big house that was really high mortgage. It was $4,000 a month, which considering we're, wow, let's see, 18 years later, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> time flies. You could call that a eight, $9,000 mortgage today, you know, based on inflation. So it was really a lot of money. I had no idea how I would take on the finances and stay at home widow, basically. So I had no idea what to do. But I did have a lot of faith that the doctor was wrong and that Rich was going to get through this. And he did. He's fine today. Although he gets his skin checked all the time. You know, gotta I'm go sure through. he does. <laughs> Everybody should be. But he is fine and healthy today. But at the time, of course, we had no idea. We didn't know. We blew through our savings. We blew through our investments, which we had just started. We were young and just starting it. Investing the traditional way and a little bit of stocks here and just a little tiny 401k, putting away 10% of our income every year. And when we look at that plan, it takes a long time to get to build wealth, and especially when you have an emergency and deplete that. So I had a radio show at the time. I my background is in news. I had taken a hiatus and I was a stay at home mom, and um, but I kept this radio show. And basically, focused on how do I create passive income so that I can continue to be a stay at home mom if the doctor's right? And if the doctor's wrong, I want to still be able to let my husband live the way he wants to, given that he had some recovery time. So, I just interviewed other people who were creating passive income and I found out they weren't any smarter. Uh, they weren't any richer than me when they started out, but they were able to do it because they had knowledge, they had something I didn't have, which was knowledge and information
0: on how to do it. Well, then how did you move forward from there? I know you're interviewing people. Did you start with your network and and building up the real wealth network? Or did you start with investing in single family homes? How did you decide asset classes and kind of a plan? Because in our group, we have a bunch of people who are looking to exit the W-2, supplement the W-2 and get themselves. They're not relying on that. So how did you get that started?
1: Absolutely, it's a great question. You have to have money to invest, right? That's that's the challenge. That's the forever challenge. Back then, it was a little bit different because you could get almost unlimited investor loans with no money down. If you could imagine, it was crazy times. I mean, the the rates were you know between six and eight percent for something like that. But hey, you know if you were getting unlimited money at six and eight percent, you'd take it too. So it was a different environment back then. Things have changed, uh, but still, nevertheless, you know you people do. You need money. So at the time, either that you either need money or you well, no, let's just leave it at that. You need money to invest for the passive income. You can be active, you can do wholesaling or flipping, but that's still an active business, right? That's not buying a whole passive investment. So as I was learning on what is now the real wealth show, uh, but back then it was called the Edge, I think, uh, is what I called it. I was on a San Francisco station because I felt like I was living on the edge. And right. <laughs> And I just started interviewing people and all the ways that they were creating creating wealth. And one way was what is now called house house hacking. That wasn't a name or a thing back then, but it was an option. So we had just bought this very big house. It's a five bedroom house. It was, we went way in over our heads because that was back when you could really get a loan. Anyone could get a loan. It was pretty easy to get even this enormous loan on this big house. Even though it felt like a noose around my neck, like this heavyweight, how in the world am I ever going to pay this mortgage payment? It also was so big that I could kind of carve it up and rent out rooms. So we just put it out on Craigslist. We got some crazy people living there, but we carved it out so that there was like an in-law suite and we locked the doors into our main house. And then we took this sort of little office area and turned that into a rental. And, and again, you know, locked off any doors into our main house. So it turned into a triplex. And there was enough money generated. I think we got 1200 on each side. So that took a huge chunk out of that $4,000 payment, right? And then I went one step further and brought in these. <laughs> a friend told me that if you bring in an exchange student, they'll pay $600 for a bed. So we, I took the playroom where the kids would normally play, and I put four beds in there. I just put like two bunk beds, and that was another $2,400. Now, did I enjoy having four students, international students, at dinner every night? You know, it was a lot. I had to cook for them. But at the same time, it was kind of cool because my kids were meeting all these people from around the world. But we got tired of it. But the point being, after that, we were paying nothing to live in this big house. And uh, it got us through a very difficult time. So that's the first thing I learned is this house hacking idea. The second thing is like, I, I did have to figure out how to make money. Because even if the mortgage was being covered, well, you still got expenses, right? Yeah. So it was at that time that I brought on a show sponsor. You know, Here I had this radio show. And I hadn't really monetized it. So I had to look at what I already had in place and what would be fairly easy for me to, to monetize. And I think we all have that. Like there's something we're good at. There's something we're doing. It's in front of our faces, but we just didn't know we could make money off it. I thought, oh, well, other people have sponsors on their shows. I can do that too. So I just went down the, the phone book, which existed back then, and um, <laughs> called one after the other looking for sponsors. And everyone said, no, it was a failure, complete failure. So I finally just thought, all right, I don't know much about sales, but I do know. But if somebody called and asked me for money, I'd probably say no as well. There's got to be something in it for me, meaning if I'm the one being sold. So I thought, what can I do on the next phone call to get a sponsor? I'll just make it so irresistible that no one could say no, because there'll be so much benefit to them. And uh, so the next person I called happened to be a mortgage broker, just some random guy in the phone book. And I said, hey, I have this radio show in San Francisco on a pretty major station. How would you like to be a co-host? that's better than sponsor so he's like yeah "Yeah." so i met with him that day and i said well you know you're gonna be co-host but there's a cost um you know because we gotta pay the bills and i i threw out a huge number and he was like okay so next thing you know i've got a co-host which was pretty laughable because all of a sudden i was doing a mortgage show but i thought once again now i got to keep my audience happy how do you make a mortgage show interesting and i asked him how do i make this interesting and he said well Don't you find it interesting that you can walk into a, that you could borrow 80%. Well, back then it was a hundred percent from the bank to buy an asset that you own. You get all the tax benefits, you get all the appreciation and all the cash flow. Don't you think that's a good angle? (laughs) So we just started interviewing all of his clients. Our phone started ringing off the hook at the radio station of people wanting to work with him. And he said, you know what? Not only has this show been so successful, I've earned back so much more than it cost me. But I can't actually keep up with the business, so why don't you get your license and take all these clients? So I did. I got my real estate license. and became a mortgage broker, and that brought in. Uh, that was very lucrative back then. That was incredible. I'm sure it is still today, but back then it was ridiculous. So that also helped us get out of the uh, the issues that we were facing at that time.
0: Yeah, that, that's a great story. You know, it's just it's thinking outside of the box and trying to find a way, trying to find an edge that you have. As you said, everyone has something that they can do to get that edge and to find a way to generate the capital so once you were successful at the mortgages the mortgage broker business did then you use that capital to go start out actually buying real estate on your own before you started your network and, and doing all the turnkey stuff you did now is that what was the next step
1: well so I did start the network pretty soon because I had this radio show and it has sort of turned into interviewing all these real estate you know millionaires many of them under the age of 30. So word got out and I started to get invited to all these RIA groups, these real estate investor groups back and remember this is like a long time ago, eighteen years ago. They didn't have meetups yet. So it was just these kind of established real estate groups. So I got asked to speak at these and MC them and you know, I really did I was new to the business. I didn't know very much. But what I did know is that it was back in the day when you'd have these really fancy soup guys, you know, and these salespeople and they'd go up and give a really inspirational talk and then say, All right, to get more information, run to the back of the room and It'll cost you 10 grand to find out more. And um, I just thought, gosh, you know, why can't, why can't you just tell us more now? (laughs) So so I just, I just started my own real estate group. And I said, you know what, if you're going to come speak in front of my room, you're going to give us everything. (laughs) I don't want people to have to, if you're already successful, just tell us how you did it. So that we had already started the Real Wealth Network. That was the whole point was like real people telling us how they really built wealth with no strings attached. And, you know, let's just help each other. And it worked. So exists today. That's what we're still doing: is educating people, bringing in experts who will come and share their their secrets. So that had started, but because our brand was growing, uh, Real Wealth, and we were helping so many people get loans and understand, you know, the ins and outs of real estate investing without having to buy the, the back of the room package. That I was able to get Robert Kiyosaki on the show, and he came on around 2005 and said. Robert Kiyosaki, author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, he, he knows a few things about pass, uh, passive income and cash flow, right? Yes, he does. So he came on and he said, okay, this has all been fun, right? We've In 2004, the home prices in, in Nevada, I think in Nevada had doubled. You know, I mean, it, it was it, at least had gone up 50%. Like, it was crazy times. And of course, everybody then wants to jump in and say, well, we just got a 40% gain in home prices. And in nevada last year well of course that's going to happen again so you know people would flood in and and buy and same with florida and parts of california so kiyosaki came on and he said you know yes we've all made a lot of money it's 2005 now these loans will come due in 2007 this is a known thing it was nothing that was secret but people just weren't talking about it so he came on the show and said play it up until 2006 2007 and then sell everything in those markets that have gone up in value and exchange them for Texas because Texas has not done that. So he was looking at fundamentals and saying, it's great that we all made this money in Arizona, Florida, and California and you know, Nevada, but sell and exchange for Texas because you the fundamentals were still in Texas. The prices hadn't gone up yet, but the jobs were going there and the people were moving there for the jobs and the home prices hadn't gone up yet and cash flows were still really high. So Rich and I thought, "Well gosh, If that's good enough for Robert Kiyosaki, it's good enough for us. So we jumped on a plane, went to Dallas, Texas, met with a few real estate agents, found out very quickly that not one of them knew how to run numbers on a pro forma, never had a rental, didn't know what they were doing. So we just were like, okay, they're just trying to sell us anything. And um, so I thought, let's just go meet with property managers, five property managers and get advice from them. And that's when we found out where the rental demand was, where the best cash flow was. It was like these property managers weren't trying to sell anything except their property management. So obviously they only wanted to tell us about areas where their properties would rent, right? So right. I just felt like I was getting honest information from them. And uh, we ended up in this little town called uh, Rockwall, Texas, that was growing really rapidly. The new freeway was coming in that would bring in more growth to the area, a, a rated schools, and they had new homes there for between one hundred and twenty and one hundred and forty thousand dollars. Gorgeous homes that rented for 1400 dollars a month. So Rich and I were like, "I can't see a problem with this." So we, because it was so easy to get loans back then, I could literally write five contracts on that weekend for five homes and get them financed within thirty days. Like it was, it was crazy. That was kind of how we started our out-of-state investing. Like, you know, I wish I, again, I wish I had bought a hundred of those, right? I mean, they, they're worth like 400,000 today. But uh, then I came home and talked about it on the Real Wealth Show. And we, people just were like, I want to do that too. And we, our phones were ringing off the hook again. I was still doing mortgages, but I couldn't do mortgages in Texas. That was one place where I wasn't able to, I wasn't licensed to do them. So we just kind of created this referral network where we could you know find the property managers that we were working with and and then you know find these agents that would help help us buy really good properties and we taught them how to understand our performance so that they knew what our clients wanted and that's when real wealth network became a business of referring you know a broker to broker relationship and we saved hundreds of people from ultimate complete failure and loss because they understood it they're like wow i, I own this $400,000 property in Stockton that rents for $1,200. I could go to Texas and have, you know, sell that, have three properties in Texas that are brand new and rent for the same. So I've just tripled my cash flow. So all of a sudden, we were just so busy helping people sell at the peak in California in exchange for properties in Texas. Two years later, the property they sold for $400,000 in California was worth $100,000. They would have lost everything if they hadn't understood. In cash flow and passive income
0: yeah that, that's amazing and'm I'm, I'm sure that is a great way to start a business right when you save people a bunch of money and then make them a bunch of money somewhere else I mean that's that's awesome so you've been doing this for a long time obviously can you talk about where we are now because I know you know we went 2007 and eight we had the trouble and then things have been kind of going up ever since we had that initial crash where do you see single-family homes multifamily? kind of can you talk a little bit about the economy and and the outlook that you you have?
1: Sure. I mean, after that whole experience of of listening to wise advice from Kiyosaki and being able to see what other people can't see, to look into the future and say, everybody's having a big party here, but the party's going to end and everyone's going to be hung over. You know, like he could see that. 2007, these loans are going to come due. People aren't going to be able to pay them, get out of the storm and get into an area like Texas where there wasn't a storm. They weren't doing loans like that and prices hadn't inflated. So I became obsessed with understanding more of that. So in 2009, when people were terrified to buy the leftovers of that hangover, you know, all these foreclosures, I was the one going, are you kidding me? You know, this this house was $400,000, it's a hundred, let's go, let's buy these. So I was kind of able to jump in and help investors get over the fear of buying when there was all this, you know, when it was scary to buy, you know, same thing land was almost they were giving it away because all these builders had, had gone bankrupt. And we had this chance to buy land for 10 cents on the dollar. And, uh, you know, it's like, well, you know, someday this is going to be valuable. Let's buy it. So I was obsessed with, again, seeing what other people can't see and taking advantage, advantage of the opportunity. So now here we are at a time that everything is different. Again, you're not finding that kind of cash flow. You're not finding very many homes undervalued these days, but there's always opportunity. So it's like, what is that opportunity? What what we believe is coming, and this comes a lot from Logan. He's a he's the uh, chief econ. He's a I believe he's the chief economist for Housing Wire. I had a, I interviewed him on the Real Wealth Show. You should get him on here. if you can, he's great. But he basically said something that I had been following too, which is demographics. Remember, I said we went to Texas because jobs were going there and jobs were attracting people. So it had the highest job growth, highest population growth in the country, but also cash flowed and prices were in line with with, um, salaries. Plus there was all this new infrastructure, new freeways, new hospitals, new schools, all this stuff, new businesses, a whole freeway that was called headquarter row with all these new buildings of all these companies moving in with their new headquarters, you know? So that made sense to us. We're still doing that. We're like, follow the demographics, follow the jobs. People are still going to Texas. You're just not going to get the same deals we got before. So, what's the new Texas? Is there another place that might have similar numbers that we were paying back then, but where there's still this job growth and population growth? And we believe that is the Southeast. So, Texas is still good, but even if you go more East, more Southeast, so Georgia, Alabama, Florida, the Carolinas, this is where populations are moving and jobs are moving because of the of the business environment in those areas. Businesses have learned a lot in 2020, right? They learned that some states were more business friendly than others, right? And uh, so if you wanna keep a business going, you're probably gonna to wanna to be in an area that allows that. So that's why we're seeing, we were already seeing demographic shift to the Southeast. Now it's even more so, but you can still find homes in that in that same price range, 120 to you know, 250 range. And that the cash flow that still exists. And to me, that's an incredible opportunity. So again, when you look at demographics to answer your questions, it's a super long answer. We also have a massive group of millennials. Millennials are already the largest demographic. But when you take this one section of them, the age between 28 and and like 32, it's the biggest section of the millennials and they are just approaching first time home buying age. So this huge cohort of Of well educated, probably the best educated ever, people who understand—they're tech savvy, so they can live anywhere. They're pretty highly paid. Many of them have incredible credit scores. They're just entering the market and will for the next four years. So we do believe that that this will continue for three to four years, and um, as long and you just want to make sure you're in the path of progress, that you're in front of where people are going and where the jobs are going.
0: Yeah, path of progress is is big, and I guess. You know, there's such a big housing shortage now. And from what I've read, it seems like that's going to last for quite a while. And as you said, we have all these 28 to 32 year olds that are coming that are soon to be homeowners. Does that mean, I know this is too long to look ahead, but do you have to be cautious because you're going to have all those people coming out and buying homes and then everyone's building homes to make up for that shortage? And then what happens after that, right? Is that where you're in a new like California was, where house prices are going to plummet? I mean, <laughs> how far ahead do you look?
1: So, you know, it's a great question. I mean, builders, I we syndicated, we started syndicating when I said we bought the land for so cheap 10 years ago. And we've been building subdivisions, partnering with uh, builders and and providing uh, single family housing and everywhere from Reno, Nevada, to Wyoming and Florida, you know, just all across at Park City, Utah. And So I can tell you firsthand from a builder perspective, It is not easy to bring new homes online, especially today with the COVID environment where the supply chain has been really seriously affected. We all know about the lumber prices. Lumber prices is just a a tiny piece of the puzzle. Just trying to get any materials, even just trying to, maybe you built the house and all you're waiting for is the appliances and you can't get them. They're on a shipping container somewhere. You can't close that house. And sometimes finally it arrives and the one piece is missing. So what are you gonna do, wait another six months for that to show up on the next shipping container? So it's been very, very difficult to build. Already for the past 10 years, builders took a a while getting up and running because they very much got wiped out after 2008. So we are way behind on building. There are some say that we need 2 million new houses every year. We're maybe bringing in 1.2. You know, and we were on target for 1.5, but it's been getting, it's just very difficult to get it done. We're delayed on all of our projects. Now our investors are happy because they're getting a 15% preferred. So the longer it takes, the less we make, the more they make. So I I don't love the way I structured that, but (laughs) I guess they do. Yeah. But it's hard to bring on new supply. Add to it that short-term rentals are a big deal. People are living longer and staying in their homes. you have got the, now you've got the hedge funds coming in and, and a tiny percentage of single family rental homes, but they're very much planning on growing that. They've had a very big impact in multifamily very little in single family. They've kind of figured it out and they're ready to go. And part of that is because they know that inflation is a real thing. Even though our Federal Reserve says it's transitory, all you have to do is look at any graph at all over the last 60 years and tell me if inflation isn't a real thing. Of course it is. Look at home prices over the last 60 years, massive inflation. Look at uh, the stock market, massive inflation. There is trillions, $10 trillion printed over the last uh, last year because of COVID, that money is circulating and it's going into stocks and real estate. So I think a lot of the hedge funds realize that in America, many home prices are still low compared to other places. When you look at a $200,000 home in Florida compared to Switzerland or something, like it's no comparison, it's still extremely cheap. And the world knows that. And they're trying to find yield. They're trying to find a safe place for all that money.
0: Hey, Leftfielders, this is Julian McClurkin from TribeVest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pifer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy. Until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up TribeVest on YouTube. I'll see you there. You're heavily involved in single-family turnkey properties, and you know that's definitely of interest to the to people listening here. Can you talk a little bit, just from the beginning, what is a single-family turnkey? What does turnkey mean, and how does someone get into that kind of investment? And then on the back end of your answer, can you compare that to multifamily syndications? Because we do a lot of that here at Left Field Investors. And so we just kind of compare and contrast the two a little bit, if you would.
1: Yeah, I learned about five years ago that turnkey means absolutely nothing. <laughs> so Turnkey, what does that mean? You put a key in and you turn it. It doesn't mean anything until you define what it means and everybody defines it differently. So we realized it real well that we needed to define the way we see it. And so we came up with standards, real turnkey standards of what we define it as. Because I would, whenever I'd see a new turnkey outlet show up, I'd, I'd go, check it out. I'd get on the airplane and go see. And I'll never forget the one time this, this young kid who was amazing at marketing, you know, he had his stuff everywhere, this turnkey, it even had turnkey in the name of their business. And, you know, I thought, I want to go see what their turnkey product looks like. So I walk into this house, he, he's walking me around and it looked like it had just come out of foreclosure. It stunk like a foreclosure. Things were broken. It was, it was gross. And I'm like, okay, when's the, when are you going to do the rehab on this? How long will it take? And he goes, oh no, 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 we did it. And I'm looking around, like I can't even open the the oven, like you don't even have a handle on it. And he's like, "Oh yeah, okay." I'm like, "Well, what is your definition of turnkey?" He just kind of looks at me like, "I sell the, I sell ten of these a month to people who don't make ask questions like like you're asking." I'm like, "Oh, what
0: people?" Wow.
1: <laughs> he was really irritated with me. So, what does turnkey mean? I mean, for him, it meant I have a property for you that I got from foreclosure. I don't know. That's what it meant for him. Maybe he bought it at auction, so he saved you that step. I don't know, but all I know is that we have a certain we expect a certain amount of life left on the roof with the the H V A C, the plumbing, the wiring. Like it needs to, it really needs to be upgraded or brand new. And if it's not, then it's not turnkey, and that's okay. You know, there's people who are happy to to buy a house that they'll fix up themselves, or or that cash flow is just fine without all those upgrades. But you have to know the condition of the property because because you've got to be able to calculate, okay, I'm buying this property, but when will I need that new HVAC? When will I need that new roof? And that needs to be calculated in your reserves, right? But if it's been replaced, well, then you don't have to calculate it in quite yet, right? You can just put aside a little bit for those things. So the bottom line is we want to know when it was replaced. And if it hasn't been, then I don't want to see it in the price. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that, that makes sense. And how do you deal with the issue of property managers? Because I think that's the most important thing, whether you're doing a syndication or you're doing a, you know, a single family home, having a property manager, somebody managing the property that does a really good job. The reason why I've sold most of my single family homes is because I really struggled to find quality property managers and I got tired of managing the manager. So how do you handle that issue for your investors?
1: Oh my gosh, yeah. I thought that property management was no big deal when I got started. And uh, we bought three homes in Boise that were brand new. And how could how could it be difficult to manage a brand new home, right? That didn't seem difficult. Well, what I found out later is our tenant, you know, snuck in three huge dogs. You know, we weren't there to check on that. Then all of a sudden there were excuses as to why he couldn't pay this month and that month and so forth. And I just found out, while. Well, Property management, it takes a real skill to do it right. If you're going to self-manage, you better know what you're doing. You better not be a bleeding heart. Because of course, if his daughter was sick, oh, you know, I understand, you know, just pay next month or whatever. So property managers are worth every penny. Don't try to whittle down the price you pay them because they are worth every penny for handling those things for you, as long as they're handling it. So you when you find a property manager, you know, with us at Real Wealth, We have a full vetting team to make sure that they've got a good track record. You know, we go on Google, see what their reviews are, make sure that we really truly understand their of the new tenant. We want to see the application. We have 20 questions that we ask a property manager that you can get at our website. You go on the learn tab um, at realwealthnetwork.com. You can get access to those 20 questions because you want to know what, what are they going to do if the tenant doesn't pay? What are they looking for when they're screening that tenant? How long does it take to do an eviction? All these things, are they going to do it? Are they going to hire someone else to do it? How many do they have if they have too many evictions and they're not screening well, right? So, you know, really got to question them in advance. There's a whole lot to it. The success of your real estate depends on your property management, hundred times over. Yeah. yeah,
0: I can't agree with you more on that because like I said, I've left the single family home market for the most part because I just can't find property managers. And that's why I've turned to, different kinds of syndications because then you have an asset manager they're responsible for managing the property manager. So my next question is if you had if someone has $25,000 right or $30,000 they want to invest somewhere and they're trying to figure out do I do a single family home where I can buy maybe a turnkey property from from your group and have a quality property manager manage it and that's where I'm going to make my money or do I take it and put it in a multifamily syndication how would you Kind of determine which is right for you or for somebody. Oh my
1: gosh, they're both great. I mean, they're both great. The, the problem with syndication is you do need to be usually an accredited investor or a sophisticated investor. Um, syndicators aren't technically supposed to take your twenty five thousand dollars unless it's just ten percent of your net worth. So just keep that in mind. That's not not every syndicator follows that, but that is kind of what the SEC likes to see. So if you, if if it's $25,000 is all you've got and you put it in one syndication, that could be considered risky and this syndicator may not accept you. However, no one's going to stop you from buying a property, right? That's that's okay. But if all you do is buy one property, you will not build wealth. That's not going to do anything for you. It's a start. In that case, I mean, it depends on where you live, but maybe you take advantage of FHA loans and buy a fourplex that you live in for a little while. Maybe it's not your dream home, but you're able to get a a very good loan if it's your primary. And if it's your primary, you don't have to live there forever. The bank is not going to say, wait, you got this FHA loan saying it was your own, but now you don't live in it. You just have to have the intention of living there and live there for a period of time. So I would, I would consider that. And in California, you're, you're not maybe going to be able, you're not going to be able to do that with $25,000, but you might somewhere else because with FHA, it's just 3% down. So that would be a possibility. Then you can, you know, maybe fix up each unit and increase value and maybe then refi out of that, get all your money out and some more and go do it again. That, that could be a way. Another way would be just fine. Go buy a really good turnkey rental property with turnkey, meaning that everything's been replaced and it's upgraded and then start saving again for your next. So again, if you buy one rental property, you're not, you're not going to be that much wealthier. If you buy 10 and then you will. Your life can change with 10 rental properties. You will be 20 years from now sitting pretty, uh, maybe even 12 years from now, if you had 10 rentals. If you had that means to do it again and save again and do whatever you did to have that 25,000, buy a house a year. And that's what my, I wrote that in my book, Retire Rich with Rentals. My mother, who was so intuitive, but she didn't, she lacked the personal power to make those intuitions come true. Um, and I, and I, it was a different generation, right? Women weren't generally involved with the finances. It's just how it was. And I remember as a little girl, my, my mom saying, you know, we should buy little houses in, in Menlo park, California. They're only $50,000. And my dad was like, Oh, well, Barbara, you know, who's going to, who's going to manage that? You know, no, oh, silly talk. And you know, now those are $5 million houses, right? But I would be sitting here as a very wealthy trust fund kid, and I'd probably be hooked on drugs. I don't know. So maybe it's better for our family. So my mom, who ended up not really being wealthy in the end, but having enough, having enough, she rented in her final years from a pastor who lived on a pastor salary. I'm guessing thirty to forty thousand a year in the small town in Northern California. Maybe fifty thousand. It was the max of his salary. And he was a multi-millionaire because in this little town up near Chico, he started at age 25 and he had the same ideas as my mom. He's like, gosh, I should just, I wonder if I could just buy a house a year. And so 30 years ago, he bought one house a year in the little town of Chico and they were probably $20,000. And of course, you know, he had a multi-million dollar portfolio by the time he was retired 30 years later, retired as a millionaire on a pastor's salary. And this was the person my mom was renting from. And she had had the same idea. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's fantastic. It's, it's the whole, you know. I talk about this a lot, but it's not a get rich quick scheme, right? Real estate, whether you're doing single family homes or or, or multi family syndications, it's a build wealth slowly scheme. Yes. And you just got to start somewhere. So I like that you're saying you could go into single family home or you can go into multi family. Just whatever you do, you have to consistently reinvest in your own wealth, right, in your own business. So I know that when I was Looking at single family, the turnkeys, it was the 1% rule, right, where you take the monthly rent divided by the price of the house, and it should be about 1%. So can you talk a little bit about how you decide as an investor, yes, I'm going to invest in this house, not that house? Because you know, when we're doing multifamily syndications, again, that's where I relate everything to now. We have a whole Excel tool that kind of helps us, guide us whether this is a good one or, or not. So how do you how do you help your investors figure that part out? Which house? Which market?
1: It's a great question. Well, we have four investment counselors now at Real Wealth Network, and each of them was a Real Wealth Network client first. So um, that's pretty cool. So we'd have these investor panels, and someone would be on the panel who who bought ten or twenty homes through our network, and were now so so experienced they could talk more about it than me because they were they were had freshly bought right and. Uh, so we're like, we need to hire you. So we have these four investment counselors who have who have built their portfolio. They really understand the markets they're in. And together as a team, when we look at a new market or we look at a new team or we look at property or a new builder or whatever, they review it as if they were going to buy it. And oftentimes they do. They tear it apart. So it used to be just me traveling around the country trying to figure it out. And I made a million mistakes. It's very difficult. If you think, Buying out of state is easy. It is not. And I don't think you think it's easy. It's not. People people lie to you. Property managers can be just snakes, you know, upcharging everything. It, it, it is the wild, wild west. And I was far too trusting in my early days. And I thought everybody was just looking after our best interests. And I can assure you, I would say 80% are not. <laughs> They're really not. They're looking after right. their own interest. We are... We. Together as a group, it's now like having this board of advisors, which is our own investment counselors and our and the director of our property teams and all the leaders in our company. We tear apart the different products that comes to us until it makes it through and or we'll, we'll help them fix any areas where they might have blind spots. With these companies, we do a lot of coaching with them because we've been around so long and we do masterminds with all of the property teams so that they can help each other. Because one might be really good at their property management, but not so great at their acquisitions or not so great at their rehab. So they all kind of help each other. It's pretty neat, even though they're competitors. But how could you go out and do it yourself? Like I said, you you want to grill the property managers. We have the 20 questions that you can ask. and You can watch a lot of webinars on a uh, Real Wealth Network that will show you how we do that. And again, for us, the beauty of being a network is we have 56,000 members. So if we start to hear something like hey you know, this property manager didn't take care of this you know we're going to go talk to that property manager to find out why but if we hear it two or three times from our members that property manager is not going to let it they're not going to be on our referral list anymore right so right. we have some control over them that way they want our leads they want our business so they have to take care of our members so there is benefit to to networks like that but doing it on your own You better have what you have, which is that spreadsheet that says, here is what I won't settle for less. Yeah, I won't settle for less. This is the minimum of what I expect. I want this much cash flow. I want these items to have this much life on it. Like the roof has to have at least five years or 10 years, whatever you decide and have have very clear parameters of what you're looking for.
0: You mentioned the network and you have an incredible network, like you said, with 60,000 plus people in it. And, you know, we're just starting out here, left field investors, and, and we're, we're trying to build a community where we can help each other kind of the way that you describe. So can you talk a little bit about just the benefits of joining a community, how you've built your network and the purpose of it, which I assume is to help everybody grow their wealth. But can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's what I just said, when better together, right? You know, I mean, you can learn from each other. Just like our property teams nationwide, we, we're looking nationwide for people who can find property, renovate it to rental ready condition, and manage it. Um, so there's lots of lots of companies, but not, not all of them have all the answers. So we created this mastermind so they could help each other. It's the same thing. Like we've created real wealth networks so that the investors could talk and, and say, hey, what do you think of, of this team in Florida? What'd you think about this group and this property manager in Texas? you know, you learn from each other. Why do it alone? You don't have to do it alone anymore. You know, so, and then, like I said, in your, in your case, you have leverage because when you have, when you come as a network and you're working with a property manager in say Texas, and you have lots of, lots of people who rent with that, with that particular, or who who are managed by that particular property manager. And that property manager doesn't want to lose a big group. Those landlords are important to them that's their business they could lose one or two so if you're just an individual that whatever but if there's 20 or 50 or a hundred or in our case thousands they're gonna <laughs> they're gonna do everything they can to keep all of us happy
0: yeah and and again the, I think the power of the network not only it keeps everybody happy but you also there's so much learning going on when when we started left field investors you know I, I really thought that I would be sharing my expertise with others and what I've found is I'm 10 times better at investing than I was a year ago, just from all of the feedback and all the learning I got from our community. And so, you know, whether you join left field investors or real wealth network or both or some other group, I think the power of community and network, you you can't overstate it.
1: Oh yeah. Other investors are going to tell you the truth. The the truth is anyone trying to sell you something is biased. We're doing a syndication or we're selling, you know, have a referral partner. we're, We're biased. Of course we are. So when, but you know, who's not biased is this? Is the, the members? <laughs> They're looking out for each other. So it, it is. There's so much power in the network. I mean, I look at what we do as kind of like a Yelp for real estate, and it keeps people in line because
0: we're talking, right? Yeah. No, that, that that's fantastic. So the last question I always ask is, what's a great podcast? And I know you have a couple. So Real Wealth Show and the uh, Real Estate News for Investors. I'll put those in the show notes, but you can't recommend those since they're your podcast. Can you recommend another podcast for our listeners?
1: You know, one of the people that I've always listened to is John Burns Real Estate Consulting. They actually do consulting for builders and uh, they have a podcast that uh, I think it's called Insights, uh, Real Estate Insights. I, I well, If you look up John Burns Real Estate Consulting, they have enormous amount of data on their website
0: and also in their podcast so i have been a huge fan of them for a long time awesome well thank you for that and we're so honored to have you on the podcast if someone wanted to get in touch with you what's the best way to do that
1: realwealthnetwork.com where you can listen to the real wealth show podcast or real estate news and then my book is retire rich with rentals on amazon
0: fantastic i will put all of that in the show notes and again thank you so much for being on the show we really appreciate it
1: thanks for having me
0: It was great having kathy on the show i really enjoyed her story of how she was house hacking and she just kept going Not only did she have other people living in her house she invited some foreign exchange students to live with her all to um, get herself started into real estate and then advertising on the radio she wasn't having success finding someone so she came up with a plan created her own resources and turned her radio show into a mortgage and real estate show and the rest is history that's for the real wealth network was born and now she's a fantastic success because of it. I also like when she talked about the real estate meetings where, know all these meetings, you got to go to the back of the room with a credit card to get all the the secrets and they lure you in. She decided she's not going to operate that way. And when she brings in a speaker, they share all the secrets, no strings attached. And I think her, her network, her community is a great example for us as we're In the beginning stages of building left field investors as a network, as a community, we can take a lot of lessons from Kathy and the way she did it. I like her analysis of using demographic shifts to analyze where to invest next. You know, investing in the path of progress, that makes complete sense. You just have to be able to find the path of progress and find where things are going. And she uses demographics to do that, which I think is, is really smart. I also like how she focuses on the property manager and putting systems in place for her providers and that's why i think she's had such success in the single family home turnkey business where so many others struggle including myself if i had uh, worked with kathy instead i may still be doing uh, single family turnkey properties i was honored to have her on the show she's a great guest she's full of knowledge and, and hopefully we'll have her on again sometime soon